Well, this is week two of our series that uh, Jerry kicked off last week called Hinges. And we're talking about some of the key doctrines of our faith. And I believe emphatically that it's important to, for us to know what we believe, but also why we believe it. You know, the problem for many of us is that we learn a lot of information, but learning information really is only part of the process. I am convinced, if you ever did this when you were in school where you learned information for a test, anybody ever do that? And you knew when you were learning it, I am only going to retain this information as long as it takes me to get into the classroom and actually write these things down on a piece of paper so I can get a grade. And then after that, I don't really care if I know that information. Is anybody else guilty of that? I mean, I know I was, right? And that's learning information is one thing, but being convinced of that is another thing. Maybe you took some courses when you were in high school or even college and you knew the answers that you had to write down, you learned the information, but you weren't convinced of the truth of the information which you learned. I think it's incredibly important for us not simply just to learn information, but to be convinced. Paul said to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, he said, however, continue in the things that you've learned and that you've become convinced of. As we go through this series the next several weeks, we don't want you to simply learn information we really want you to be convinced of what the Bible teaches with regards to these doctrines of the faith. And furthermore, I want you to know this as well, that if you have questions, we really want this to be a safe place where you can ask those questions. Many of you I know are like me, and maybe you either grew up or you've been in church environments where it was not a good thing for you to ask tough questions, right? You just accepted what you were being taught. And if you ask questions, how dare you ask the question? Because if you ask the question by implication, you assumed and others assumed that you really didn't believe what was truth. And so you were kind of labeled either a troublemaker or a heretic or whatever, right? We want Northwest, and we have since day one, we want it to be a place where it is safe to explore Bible doctrine and the tough questions about our faith. And I hope you feel that way. Whether you're a middle school, high school student, or you're 80 years old here today, I want you to feel like this is a safe place where you can ask questions. And so I want you to feel free to come and talk to one of your pastors. I will tell you this, we don't always have all of the answers. There's a lot of stuff we do know. We, we, we got paper on our walls that says we're supposed to know those things, right? There's a lot that we do know, but there's a lot that we don't know, or sometimes you'll have a question and we'll have to do a little digging with you. I want you to know that we are committed to helping you discover and not only learn truth, but be convinced of it as well. And I believe that one of the most important doctrines of all of Scripture is the doctrine that we refer to, at least in Bible college and seminaries, we refer to as bibliology. It's the doctrine of the Bible. And it's so important, and I especially, you know, I, I stand up here this morning and I, and I look at those of you that are young, you middle school and high school students in particular, and I know we have our elementary kids in here as well. I know some of what I say today, while well, I'm going to try to put the cookies real low down on the shelf where you can reach them, I know that for some of you, some of it's going to go a little bit over your head. I pray that you'll retain at least a little bit of it and that you'll be convinced of some of these things. 
Because if you are convinced of the reliability of Scripture, if you are convinced that this book is truth and that it can be trusted, it will open up all kinds of incredible doors for you. However, until you are convinced of that, your faith will be shaky. Why is that? Because all of the other doctrines, what Jerry talked about last week, what we believe to be true about God, Jerry's going to talk next week about sin, we're going to talk about eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. We're going to talk in just a few weeks about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. All of those things are based upon the reliability of this book. That's why it's so important for you to be convinced, not just simply to learn facts, but to be convinced that this is truth. And it stands to reason that if the God of the universe wrote a book for us, that we might do well to understand what it says, right? Bart Ehrman, some of you are familiar with him. He is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I became familiar with him about 15 years ago. Actually was able to go to one of his classes. He's a fascinating man one of the, and a brilliant man, by the way. One of the things that I have been most interested in as far as his story goes is that Bart grew up an evangelical Christian, came to know the Lord, went to Moody Bible Institute, graduated from Moody, went to Wheaton, and then ultimately got a doctorate from Princeton Seminary. And now, at this point in his life, about 15 years ago, would now label himself as a liberal agnostic. And while a brilliant man, and we disagree on a whole lot of stuff that we used to agree on, obviously, he is a brilliant man, and I find fascinating some of the things that he talks about. Uh, just from an apologetic standpoint, recently, while he was speaking at Stanford University, he made this statement, and I wanted you to watch it this morning kind of as an introduction. So uh, I, uh, uh, as Bob was pointing out, I teach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, which, uh, as uh, you all know, is in the, uh, it's the buckle of the Bible Belt, uh, which uh, creates uh, certain uh, interesting moments uh, in teaching uh, historical approaches toward early Christianity and the New Testament. Uh, this, this last year, I was teaching my course on the New Testament. Uh, so I, I had a class uh, of about 360 <laughs> students uh, in it. And uh, I, I decided to do something this last year that I had never done before. I, I began my class uh, by asking students the following question. I said, how many of you in here would agree with the proposition that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Boom! The entire room raises its hand. All right, good, great. Now, uh, how many of you have read the Da Vinci Code, I asked? Boom! The entire room raises hand. Oh, good, okay. Now, how many of you have read the entire Bible? Scattered hands. <laughs> I said, all right. Now, I'm not telling you that I think God wrote the Bible. You're telling me that you think God wrote the Bible. I can see why you might want to read a book by Dan Brown. <laughs> but if God wrote a book... <laughs> Wouldn't you want to see what he had to say? <laughs> uh, it's just one of the mysteries of living in the South. Well, I found that to be fascinating. I don't know if you do, but you know, that is what, what happens when an unbelieving, a skeptical, agnostic world is confronted by Christians who say that they believe that this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, and yet they don't read it. They don't know it, they don't understand it, they don't study it. 
That is what a skeptic does. A skeptic laughs at us when we say that we believe that and yet we're not familiar with the word of God. If we really do believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, then we might want to know what it says. And as Christians, we make a lot of assumptions about the Bible. We make the assumption that the Bible is true, that it's relevant, and more importantly, that it is the very word of God. But what if it's not? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What if, it's just a, what if it's just a holy book that's been passed down through the ages, but merely the words of men? What if it's not true? What I want to do is I want to answer two questions in the 25 minutes and five seconds that I, that I have left, which is kind of, kind of crazy to think that I'm going to do that. But I want to answer just two questions. By the way, this probably should be a sermon series or a lecture series, and we'd probably need at least five sessions of about two hours each, all right? So if you, how many of you used Cliff Notes when you were in high school, when you were in college? All right, liars. A lot of you use them, all right? Matt Bosman, I believe you use them for every class. I, I do believe that, right? And you know the Cliff Notes. Just, that's what you're getting this morning, all right? And Jerry will tell you as well that almost every week, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get a Cliff Notes version. We're going to like pull the fire hose out and we're, I'm just going to start spraying, all right? And hopefully if you got your mouth open, your ears open, your heart open, you're going to get a little bit there. But I want to answer two questions. Number one is how did we get our Bible? How did we get our Bible as we currently have it? I'm going to walk you through that just real quickly. And then I want to give you eight things why I believe that the Bible can be trusted. All right, so buckle up. Hopefully the things I talk about I think are gonna be on the screen here if you're, if you're uh, taking some notes. And I will tell you this too because it's pretty obvious based on my, my speaking in the first service that I'm not gonna be able to get through all this material. And so I don't normally do this because I don't do a good job of, of footnoting in my own personal manuscript here. But if you're interested in it, if you send me an email, I'll be happy to, to send it to you with that caveat, all right, that things aren't all footnoted properly as they should be. All right, buckle up. Let's dive right in here. How did we get our Bible in its current form? First of all, if you go to Northwest 101, here's what we will say that we believe about the Bible. Not only will we say it, we believe it. Hopefully you, you see that we practice it at Northwest. We believe that the Bible is our sole source for faith and practice. In fact, maybe some of you have been in certain settings where you have heard or seen the term sola scriptura. Sola meaning alone, scriptura referring to the pages of this book. We believe that it is God's word alone that is our sole source for faith and for practice. In other words, we believe without apology and without wavering that scripture alone is complete, it is authoritative, and it is true. That's what we believe. We don't shy away from that. Yes, there are difficult questions that have to be answered from an apologetic standpoint, from a skeptic standpoint. We don't shy away from diving into that, but that is what we believe to be true about, God, about God's word. It's incredibly important to know, though, how we got this book. I think a lot of us think that just like Moses went up on top of a mountain and he came down with tablets, that someday there was somebody who went up on some mountain and he came down with you realize probably not the NASB or the ESB, but certainly the King James, right? <clears throat> certainly they came down with the King James. Well, you realize the King James version is from about the 1600s. Up until then, they, they didn't have the King James version. 
What happened before that? How did we get our Bible? I want to take just a moment, and I'm going to have to go through these things very quickly. And several of these are deep theological truths, okay? So when I open up the fire hose and I just start spraying you with them, you'll go, wow, I think that's got to be deeper than that. It is. It's much deeper, all right? I'm just going to give them to you quickly. Just six things. First of all, first came God's desire to communicate with his creation. We call that revelation, all right? We call that revelation. That alone causes me to pause for just a moment. The whole idea that God would want to communicate, that God would want to be in relationship, would want us to know about him, that whole thing just blows me away. And you say, well, why is that? Because if I was God, I wouldn't want anything to do with me or with you, right? I mean, if God is who he says he is, and I believe that he is, Jerry did a great job last week of talking about that very subject of here's who God is. If that's me, I don't want anything to do with people like me or you. I mean, I just got other things to do, right? I float around the universe and I do things, but I don't worry about insignificant people like us. But God, in his infinite wisdom, decided he would have a relationship with us. He would reveal himself to us. That's the process that we know in doctrine as revelation. Secondly came inspiration. That's the actual transmission of what he wanted us to know. It involves the biblical process we refer to as inspiration. This is the process whereby God breathed the words to human agents who would write them down. Our classic proof text, by the way, in in bibliology, if you were in Bible college or seminary, they would take you right to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and then we would go off from there. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, a lot of you know that verse. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration. That's the process by which God gives to human agents what he wants us to know, and they write it down. Third is dissemination, right? The information, if God wants us to know it, if he reveals it, if he inspires it, and we write it down, but it's not disseminated, information is no good unless it's disseminated. That's where it's delivered to the audience through preaching, through teaching, and other means like in the New Testament, through the process of letters that were written to the early churches or to individuals. Number four, then came recognition. As Christians began over the first centuries to distinguish God's word from actual other religious writings. Fifthly, is something that I think is really cool, and I'd really like us to park here and spend about a half an hour just here, is the preservation of Scripture. That's what, to me, is just such an incredible thing. In fact, Jesus said it in the Gospels that his word would not pass away, that his word would stay true, that it would always be with us. And that's the process through which the Bible has survived to this day, despite so many times over hundreds and hundreds of years that people have made attempts to eradicate the Bible from the earth. It's still with us. The book is preserved. And then finally, and this is really cool, we should spend about half an hour about right here too, finally is the process we know of illumination. If you were with us a year ago, we did a whole series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, about four weeks. And this is one of the things that I stressed over and over and over and over again, is the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The illumination of the Holy Spirit, we refer to this as the process by which the Holy Spirit, who lives in the life of each true follower of Jesus, 
And he gives us the ability to be able to understand and make application of the Bible. This is why Paul, by the way, wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote that spiritual truth is just that. It is spiritually discerned. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this will seem like foolishness to you. I've said for a long time, in fact, when I was a youth pastor, I told middle school and high school kids this pretty consistently. If you find God's word on a consistent basis to be boring and something that you do not understand, you have no desire to follow, then that would be when you would begin to go, do I really have a relationship with Jesus? Has the Spirit of God really invaded my life? Is the doctrine of the illumination of the Spirit of God, is it at work in my life? That is an important, important part of this process. That eventually we have this book, but some of it, We could never, ever, ever understand unless the Spirit of God illumines us and gives us the ability to do just that, all right? Now, the process by which we got our 66 books is usually called the canonization. Thus, the 66 books are referred to as the canon, not canon like shoot cannonballs out of. It is the list of books which are divinely inspired and therefore are authoritative. The word canon comes from the rule of law, that was used to determine whether or not a book measured up to a standard, and I'll give you that standard here in just a few moments. Here's what's also important for you to know. Compared to the New Testament, there was much less controversy over the canon of the Old Testament. Hebrew believers accepted what had been written down and accepted that it was the inspired word of God. The copies, the manuscripts that they had were very reliable. They took it very, very seriously. They took very seriously their responsibility to copy correctly those manuscripts. And so while there was undeniably some debate in regards to the Old Testament canon, by about AD 250, there was nearly universal agreement on the canon of the Hebrew Scriptures. The only issues really remained being the Apocrypha, with some debate and discussion, and that continues today. Some of you come from a Catholic background. The Catholic Bible has that in there. But the vast majority of Hebrew scholars, even to this day, considered the Apocrypha to be certainly good historical and religious documents, but not on the same level as the Hebrew Scriptures. For the New Testament, the process of the recognition and collection began in the first centuries of the Christian church, And very early on, a lot of the New Testament books were just recognized as the authoritative scriptures. And determining the canon then was a process by which Jewish rabbis and scholars and later early Christians met. And here's what's incredibly important for you to understand about how we got our Bible as it is today. Ultimately, it was God who determined the canon of scripture. All right? If you're taking notes, write that down. That's incredibly important. It wasn't a group of men and women that were meeting in these councils that determined these are the 66 books of the Bible. Oh, we've figured it out. We'll decide this is what we like. This is what fits nicely together. It was God who decided what books belonged in the biblical canon. And what God did was simply a matter of him convincing his human followers which books should be included in the Bible. Those books were inspired the moment they were written and the moment that God gave those human agents those words. It was simply the church that God illumined, that God gave them the ability to be able to figure that out. We must understand that God determined the canon and the church 
discovered it. And so there were councils that met in the early centuries, and there were four principles that they used to determine whether or not a book was truly the inspired word of God. Number one, was the author an apostle, or did he have a close connection with an apostle? Number two, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Number three, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And number four, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? In other words, was the literature, was the book that was written and was it being studied, was it transforming and changing lives based on the truth that was being taught? And by AD 363, the council at Laodicea stated that only the Old Testament books, the 39 books, and the 27 books of the New Testament were to be read in the churches as early as 363. And then the Council of Hippo in AD 393, right? don't ask me, that's one of those questions, don't ask me why they called it the Council of Hippo. You can Google that, I'm sure that there'll be some answer there and I'm quite confident it'll be correct. The Council of Hippo in AD 393 and then in AD 397 also confirmed those same Old Testament and New Testament books as authoritative. Now here's what's also really fascinating and Again, I wish we could go off on a tangent, that it wasn't until 1384 that we actually had the Bible in English. And that was a man by the name of, anybody know? John Wycliffe. You've heard of Wycliffe Bible Translators. That's kind of where that whole ministry came from. And to this day, Wycliffe Bible Translators is all over the globe translating Scripture into native tongues. But it wasn't until 1384, and what's really incredible is it wasn't until 50 or 60 years later that the printing press was invented. So these early copies, as it was translated into English, the copies were made literally by hand. Imagine if you were tasked with the process this next week of going and copying down the 66 books of the Bible. We didn't have a copy machine. We didn't have scanners. We didn't have any ability to be able to do that. It wasn't until 1384 that it was actually in English. And then, of course, we've had a lot of translations since then. We've got churches that believe that there is only one translation, that that was what came down directly from God in its form in the English language, right? That's the King James. I was talking with a woman just this morning, and she was telling me about a church that she's familiar with and anything else other than, in fact, you're stopped at the door, right? And if you don't have the 1611 King James Version, you're asked to leave whatever else you have at the door, there's a theological word for that issue, and it's called stupid, all right? That's the Greek, and I can kind of go from there if you'd like me to. And you say, well, you're mocking. I really am to a certain degree because that whole debate has created a riff in Christendom and evangelicalism, which is really, really sad uh, to me. In fact, and I've got to be careful that I don't get off on a tangent here. In fact, most of you, a lot of you today are carrying, I, I've got an ESV with me. Some of you have an NASB or an NIV. You will find that as you go back to the original languages, as you go back to the Hebrew and the Greek, that a lot of our modern translations, I use those in particular, are much better translations, I believe, personally, than the King James actually was. Nothing wrong with the King James. If you have one here today, you're welcome to have it here. But if you have an NIV, if you have an NASB, if you have an ESV, you are welcome here as well, all right? So that's how we got the Bible as we know it. Now, again, that's about a five-hour lecture that you got in about eight minutes, all right? That's the Cliff Notes version. 
And so let's say that you believe all of that, that you go, hey, that sounds good to me, sounds logical, how we got it, how we got what we have right now. How, how do we know it's true? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if you're really honest, at some point, most of you have probably said, it's there, but how do I really know that it can be trusted? How do I really know that it's truth? I want to tell you, I certainly have, have studied bibliology over the years in my education, but even this last week, I've probably spent somewhere between 10 and 15 hours just listening to debate between a liberal scholar and a particular professor, a textual critic at Dallas Seminary. And I found it to be fascinating because at the end of the day, while I by nature am a skeptic and I love asking the tough questions, I have been thoroughly convinced once again that this can be trusted. And I want to give you eight things just real quickly, and some I'm going to give you a little quicker than others. All right, I had people coming up to me after the service, you know, saying, hey, we should do this as a series. We probably should. Maybe we should. We probably won't. I will say that. This is like an eight or ten week series if we really took the time to go off on a lot of these areas. So I'm going to give it to you very quickly. Again, open up. I'm going to get the fire hose out. All right. But I'm going to give you eight different reasons and comment just briefly on them about why I believe the Bible can be trusted. Number one is the testimony of the manuscripts. The testimony of the manuscripts. Now here's what we would agree even with liberal scholars. We agree that the original manuscripts of the Bible have not survived. Even though, as I said earlier, our King James friends really believe like that was the original. That was really what God gave and that's what he intended for us to have. That's not true. All right? The original manuscripts of the Bible have not survived, at least as we know at this date in 2015. However, there is no other book from the ancient world that has more or earlier or better copied manuscripts than the Bible. That's really, really a cool thing, an important thing for you to note. The Bible, the New Testament, was written from about AD 40 to 100. And the earliest copy that we have, or fragment of a copy, is about AD 125, which is about 25 years after John finished Revelation. Get this, though. We have more than 25,000 pieces or fragments of the New Testament manuscripts that are available as witnesses. 25,000 pieces. And as of recently, most scholars agree that we have, in the Greek alone, over 5,700 manuscripts or fragments that have been preserved. Now, generally speaking, the oldest copies of the manuscripts are the better. The older the manuscript, that's better. Again, because remember, we didn't have a printing press. We didn't scan. We didn't do any of those things, right? And so what happened? So manuscripts were copied, right? So you had copies of copies of copies of copies, and so, so forth and so on. So when we get back up to the earliest copies, those are obviously the better copies. Of all the ancient Greek and Latin literature, Homer's Iliad ranks next to the New Testament in possessing the greatest amount of manuscript testimony. The Iliad, how many of you read the Iliad? All right, if you went to high school, you probably did. A lot of you didn't, obviously. The Iliad was written in 900 B.C., and the earliest copy that has survived is from about 400 B.C., so about 500 years after the original. And there are about 643 copies or fragments of copies. 
noted apologetic author John Warwick Montgomery describes the reliability of the New Testament text this way. He says, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of the classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested to bibliographically as the New Testament. There's a wealth of material that has enabled scholars that most agree to place the restoration of the original text at somewhere past 99%. In fact, there are some Bible scholars that believe that it's at about 99.99%. That after all of the fragments, all the pieces that they've looked at, they've been able to cross-reference, put things together, and they believe that, that they have that much reliability as far as recovered text. Sir Frederick Kenyon well summarizes the situation. He says this, the number of manuscripts of the New Testament is so large that it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some form or another of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. What's really interesting to me as well is that conservative textual critics as well as liberal textual critics, they do agree on this one thing, that the reliability of Scripture is so great that there is no doctrine that Jerry and I will talk to you over the next six weeks about that can be refuted based on the doubt that is there with regards to the manuscripts. That's a pretty cool thing. So when we talk to you about the doctrine of sin next week or the doctrine of salvation We have enough that we know and can be verified through textual criticism that not one major Bible doctrine is questioned. And that's really a cool thing. So first of all, we have the testimony of the manuscripts. Next, we have the testimony of the scribes. The Bible, as a lot of you know, was written over a period of about 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. And each each one of those authors insisted that their message came from God. And as a result, many of them were persecuted, many of them were put to death. Of the 11 apostles, plus Paul, only John escaped a a martyr's death, although he was boiled in oil and banished to Patmos. You'd think if you were boiled in oil, you'd just want to die, right? And not just be banished to Patmos. After all of this, though, even John continued to boldly proclaim the divine truth of which some of he had written himself. The prophets expressed that they believed that their message was coming from God when they used such phrases as, thus saith the Lord, or God said, or the word of the Lord came to me. They were convinced that they were speaking the very words of God. And many of those prophets as well suffered and they died because they claimed to be writers of the very words of God. I believe that that gives us great proof of the reliability of Scripture because of the testimony of the scribes. Number three is the testimony of Structure. Here's what really one of the cool things is. We've talked about doing this, by the way, as a series here at Northwest, and we may do it one of these years, where we walk you through from Genesis to Revelation in the course of one year, and we show you the major theme of Scripture and how really there is one major theme, and that is the redemption of mankind. We see it all the way from the Garden of Eden all the way to the book of Revelation. I think there is a really clear argument that comes from the structure of the Bible. One of the most remarkable things is that 
although it was recorded by 40 different authors over a period of almost 1,500 years from the Old Testament till the most recent written book of the New Testament. And although these guys came from a lot of different backgrounds, some educated, some uneducated, different occupations, different levels of education, you would think that there would be just a whole myriad of themes that would run through those 66 books. And yet we find consistently the unified message. Our problem is that we are sinners. And the solution is found because a loving God revealed himself to us and wanted to have a relationship with him, wanted us to have a relationship with him. And he made that possible through the gospel. And we see that all the way from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation. I think there's a great argument in there. Any book written over a period of 1,500 years with the same theme by such a vast degree of different authors, I think it can be trusted. Number four, and I've got to really hurry because that clock says I have 18 seconds. So that's not going to work, all right? But I'm going to move quickly here. Number four is the testimony of science. Now, I know some of you are very well-educated people. Some of you have earned doctorates, PhDs, that's awesome. And this is where you would, man, you just really love to dig here. I had a person come to me afterwards and said, hey, can you send me everything you've got on that, on science and archaeology? It's really cool that the Bible was very much way ahead of its time because why? Because it was inspired by a God who created the universe, right? And so we find things like the shape of the world as it hangs in space. When we look in Job 26 and Isaiah 40, For a long, long time, human beings thought that the earth was what? That it was flat, right? That you could run like Forrest Gump, and eventually, you would leap out into space, right? Because it's flat. And then we found out that it really wasn't flat. Interesting thing is the Bible knew that from the beginning, right? And why is that? Well, because the Bible is inspired by the one who created the earth. There was once a time when it was believed that sick people should be bled. We should let the blood out of them go to a hospital now and say, I think I'm sick. Would you please let my blood out? Right? Now they do just the opposite, right? You go into the hospital and depending on a surgical procedure or if you've had some kind of an accident, what do they do? They infuse you with blood because life is in the blood. It's interesting that as early as Leviticus chapter 17, the Bible correctly declared that blood is the source of life and healing. You know, there was once a time when people on this planet, intelligent people like you and like me, believed that there were about 1,100 stars. Have you looked up into the sky on a clear night? The Bible, very early on in Scripture, we read that the universe is full of not hundreds of stars, but billions and billions of stars. I believe that the testimony of science gives great credibility to the Scripture. Then we look at archaeology. We don't have time, but the testimony of archaeology, to me, is really fascinating I would encourage you to do some reading on your own. I've never been one of those guys that wants to go over to the Middle East and, you know, dig in sand. That's not something I've wanted to do, but I'm glad that people do that and sit there with little brushes and they scrape things off and they excavate these ancient cities. I'm glad that people do that. One of the most intriguing is the excavation of the city of Jericho. And I would, I would challenge you to study that a little bit. For a long time, scholars argued about the reliability of Scripture based on how Scripture says the walls fell until John Garsting excavated the city of Jericho and it gave great reliability to Scripture because they realized that the walls of Jericho fell exactly like Scripture says they fell. 
You get to the book of John where Jesus heals a cripple at the pool of Bethesda. And liberal scholars for a long time said there is no evidence of that until about 1888 when traces of the pool were discovered near the church of St. Anne. Noted archaeologist Nelson Gluck states, as a matter of fact, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a Bible reference. That's pretty awesome. With all the digging that's been done, and nothing has ever refuted the testimony of Scripture. Number six is the testimony of prophecy. The Bible speaks of nearly 300 prophecies of the Messiah, the latest of which dates back to more than 200 years before the birth of Jesus. We read in Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin. Think of how whacked out it was for somebody to write that down. There's a baby that's going to be born, and the woman, the birth mom, is going to be a virgin. She's never going to have been sexually with a man. Well, it's because it can be trusted because that was a prophetic word that came through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. How about his birthplace would be Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5. Why would somebody choose Bethlehem? Bethlehem, we know it as we've studied the Bible, Bethlehem was an insignificant city. How about that this coming king would really not be accepted, but that he would suffer and die, Psalm 22. His resurrection in Psalm 2 and Psalm 16. His ascension into heaven in Psalm 66. Author Peter Stoner, an academic in the areas of science and mathematics, calculated the odds that any one person could fulfill just eight prophecies predicted by the Messiah. And after doing the calculations, he said, we find that chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. And he illustrated it this way. I love this illustration. He said, suppose we take 10 to the 17th power, silver dollars, and lay them down on the face of Texas. They'll cover the whole state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and that must be the right one. What chance does he have to get it right? You guessed it. One in 10 to the 17th power. That blows my mind. That blows my mind that there's all that prophetic word in the Old Testament, all perfectly fulfilled as Scripture says it would be fulfilled. I think the testimony of archaeology, or the testimony of prophecy, is really incredible. And then quickly, there's the testimony of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and therefore his views in the Bible are very important. He said of the Old Testament that it was divinely authoritative, that it was imperishable, that it was infallible, that it was inerrant, that it was scientifically accurate. In fact, Jesus promised that the New Testament would be God's word as well and could be trusted. He told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and lead them into all truth. We see that in John chapter 16 and verse 13. Those seven proofs are really great. But I would say to you, the one that I really love the best is I love the testimony of changed lives. The testimony of changed lives. And maybe you can say that about me because you can say, well, hey, we know him to be a pretty simple person and that's the one that makes most sense to him. And so he just kind of parks on that one. The Bible is God's letter to us so that we might know who he is and who we are without him, but who we can be with him and when we are in relationship with him. I believe that the truth of the word of God has the power to transform and to change lives. There's some of you here in this room this morning and you know that's your story. 
when you were confronted with the truth of the gospel, with the truth of God's word, and you received it as truth, your life was radically changed. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who penned a good portion of the New Testament, his life was radically changed when he was confronted with the truth of the gospel. So much so that he wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And by the way, from what we know of the Apostle Paul, he was an incredibly well-educated man. He was not some uneducated peasant who just blindly accepted whatever he had been told. He was an educated man. And he said, this message, this message found in this book has transformed and has changed my life. The writer of Hebrews wrote that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the power of the word of God. Some of you I know have read and studied Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And I think Tim Keller, in my mind, is one of the most brilliant theologian preachers that's in our world today. I love it because even for a guy that, that is supposed to know a lot about these things, I get confused a lot. And a guy like Tim Keller can really put it down someplace where we can understand it. I would encourage you to read his books. In his book, The Reason for God, he makes this observation. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In a truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. He says, now what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. He goes on to say this, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you have gotten a hold of a real God and not a mere figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. It's a great quote. It's great truth. It's the precondition for a personal relationship with God to have a very high view of Scripture and for you and I to actually not have a high view of Scripture, but to have such a high view of Scripture that we read it, we study it, we consume it so that it, we allow it to transform and change our lives. Jerry mentioned to you last week that at the end of each sermon, we want to answer the question then, what doors does this close for us? If we believe the Bible to be the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God, this closes two doors for us. It closes the door for us to believe that the Bible is open to our interpretation. Now, if you've ever sat in a Bible study and you went around the Bible study and you're looking at a particular passage of Scripture and the facilitator says something like this, what does it mean to you? I hate that question. Here's what's really truth, all right? I'm just going to give you truth, all right? I'm a shepherd. I love you. I don't really give a rip what it means to you. You shouldn't give a rip what it means to me. The challenge for us is to say what? What does it mean, right? 
What did God mean when he wrote this? And how am I supposed to make application of it in my life? That is one of the problems with evangelical churches today. Whatever it means to you, that's what it means. Two plus two might be five to you. You're wrong. You don't get a whizzy button if you write down five, all right? It's not truth. This closes for us the door that the Bible has opened to our interpretation. And it's not okay for us to pick and choose what we believe. What door does it open for us? I think it opens a great door for us because it opens the door to us that we can have a direct connection to God because of the illumination that the Spirit of God gives us to the Bible. We can know everything that God wants us to know about him and about us and about what relationship with him looks like. You want to know why your life is screwed up, some of you? Your life is screwed up because you don't know and understand the word of God and you don't make application of it in your life. Right? You say, give me a good book on marriage, okay? You say, give me a good book. I want to I learn to be a man of God. I want to lead my family. All right? You say, man, I really want to live a godly life as a teenager. You know, I really want to, in my high school, I want to make a difference for the cause of Christ. Can you, can you give me some, uh, some student Bible that's got like 7,000 little pithy devotionals in it about, you know, life? And, and by the way, I'm not against student Bibles, all right? But those little devotionals will never change and transform your life. You know what will change and transform your life? When you have a high view of Scripture and you take that Scripture and you, like the psalmist said, you devour into it and you eat them as great food like you were sitting at Lost Trace or like you were eating great ice cream or, or, and you just gobble it up. That, my friends, is what will change and transform your life. And when you have a high view of Scripture and you are convinced that it's reliable, God's Word will change and transform your life. Thank you. Thank you. A couple of you believe that, and I'm glad you do. John Piper, I close with this. John Piper's probably one of my favorite preachers. Sometimes he doesn't make sense to me. He says things, and I go, I don't understand what you said, but I'm sure that was good, all right? He writes a lot of things. You read some of his books. I mean, he's written some really good stuff. I wrote this down several months ago when I read this, and I want to close with this, because I think this is so true. When all your favorite preachers are gone, and all their books are forgotten, you will have your Bible. He said, master it, master it. And I want to encourage you to do that. When you leave this room today, I won't be here to give you anything. You'll take God's word with you. Master it, master it. If we're a people that master the word of God, we will make incredible impact in this community. When we live out what the maker, what the creator of the universe said we should do. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks that it is quick and powerful and it's sharp and it pierces us. Sometimes it stings us, but it has the ability also to be able to transform and change our lives. And God, I thank you that we've been able just to open up the fire hose and give a bunch of information. But as we said when we started, information means very little if we're not convinced. God, I pray pray so much for our people here, for grade school kids, middle school kids, high school kids, college kids especially that are in this room this morning. For those of us that are older, all the way to the oldest person in here, God, I pray that you would convince us that your word is truth. 
that we are so convinced that your word is truth and that it came from an omnipotent, holy, omniscient God that we so devour it and we commit to living our lives according to biblical truth. God, may that be the norm for people that call Northwest Community Church their church home. We pray these things in Jesus' name.